These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is in the Arabah, opposite Surf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Gadesh, Banea, by the Mount Sur Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and at Edri, who defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighbouring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land. The Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. The next reading from 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebel against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tent and said, The Lord had us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorite to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our heart melt in fear. They say, The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the anarchites here, there. Then I said to you, don't be terrified, don't be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, and he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes, and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son, otherwise you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey, in fire by night and in a cloud by day, to search out place for you to come and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard that what you say, he was angry and solemnly swore. No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestor, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendant the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Thank you. Well done with all those place names. Very good. 
I just encourage if you've got to have a Bible in front of you, because especially when we do Old Testament stuff like this, we tend to need to look at bigger passages. And there's not really, for the sake of time, we don't read the whole thing in the service. So it's great if you've read it, and it's great if you've got it in front of you. So we'll be looking at Deuteronomy 1, but also dipping into chapter 2 and 3 as well, because they go together as a chunk. Anyway, don't tell me now out loud, but what is your most embarrassing moment? Just think, keep it to yourself for our sake, thanks. <laughs> most of us have times that we can think of that still make us cringe and want to shrink down. Or perhaps you could think about not so much embarrassing moments, but perhaps something that when you look back, you can see a pattern of repeated behavior that you really wish you'd done differently. So here's a trivia example. This is our first house in England. Um, and that little sort of roofy bit above the door there used to have a hanging basket on it with flowers in. And next to the doorstep, there was always the empty milk bottles for the milkman, if that makes sense to you. So every morning, without fail, I go out, bye everyone, bye, and I walk out of the house, bump my head on this hanging basket, step backwards, and knock over the milk bottles. Every morning, without fail. And Sharon would come out and see the evidence of the knocked-over milk bottles and the soil on the floor and wonder how it was I ever made it through a day. Now, that's a trivial example of repeated mistaken behavior. But what about things in our past, more significant things that we're ashamed of, the bits of our past that we'd really never like to never think about ever again? Well, in this book of Deuteronomy, it's a series of sermons by Moses, you know, the great man Moses. And, and Moses begins it by raking up the past, by going over in excruciating detail Israel's most embarrassing moments, their most shameful moments. So why does he do that? Why does he start in the past? And is that something we should do? You know, if we really are, Saved by Jesus, our sins forgiven, our debt paid for by his death for us on the cross. And we are, that's where we are. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, spiritually speaking. That's how we begin today. Well, shouldn't in that case we just leave our past behind us, forget all about it? Well, let's look into it. Uh, the outline in your leaflets there. And first of all, we find Moses and the people of Israel at a place of decision. A place of decision. So verse 1 sets the scene. These are the words of Moses. Moses, Mr. Israel, the man who under God had led them out of slavery in Egypt, miraculously, brought them to the edge of the promised land. So I don't know if you've ever had a boss or a head teacher, someone you really respected. The kind of person that no one can remember than not being there. And they, give, and they come to their retirement or the leaving, and they give a farewell speech. Well, that's, that's Moses here. He's been Israel's leader for about 50 years, and this is kind of his last hurrah. He knows he's not going in with them into the promised land, and so this is his final inspirational pep talk at what he knows is a turning point in their history. They're at a crossroads. And Moses wants God's people to thrive in the land, enjoy um, their very special relationship with God, and the wonderful life he's got planned for them. And so he doesn't pull any punches. I've called this series Choose Life. 
choose life. And that comes from some verses in chapter 30, which summarizes really well Moses' messages to God's people. So verse, chapter 13, verse 19 and 20. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Choose life. Moses begins to show them now how to do that, how to choose life. So before going any further, they need to learn from their past mistakes. And he wants them to view their future through the lens of their history with God. Did you notice in verse 2, the editor puts in a little detail there? bit of map reading he says it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir road and then verse 3 in the 40th year so a very rough map here thank you Kadesh Barnea is on the edge of the promised land and the, uh, the roughly the point where they're supposed to enter and as we join them they're a bit further around to the east but the point being made is this It's taken them 40 years to make an 11-day journey. Now, why is that? Is that because they're all blokes and they wouldn't ask for directions? Maybe not. Why is it taking so long? And what can they learn from that? What can we learn from that? But first, though, we need to be clear who Moses is talking to. Um, Our next heading, them and us. Because it's easy to read stuff like this and think, well, this is great. That's for Israel. What about us? Let's join those dots. See, Moses is speaking to the generation in front of him as if they were involved in the events of the last 40 years. Verse 6, he talks about us. Verse 9, at that time I said to you, verse 26, you were unwilling to go up. But in fact, in verse 35, we see almost none of the original Exodus generation that came out of Egypt of fighting men were left. Most of them died off in the wilderness under God's judgment for failing to enter the land. So the people Moses is speaking to were either just children then or not even born. But Moses is speaking to them as God's chosen people. Just like people will say to me, you Brits landed in a country, stuck a flag in it and claimed it as your own. I never did that, but I take the point. A collective identity that continues throughout generations. So this message is for God's people to learn from God's people. And that's why Moses reminds them uh, in verses 19 to 23 about how he'd devolved leadership to them. He wants them to recognize it was Israel collectively that is to blame for them being 40 years late to this party. Now Moses will admit he's had his own share of the blame, but he insists that all the people must share the blame as well. Now, we need to be careful that we're further along in God's big plan to save us. Um, God's big plan for the world. We're further along. And we've got to adjust how we apply these words to ourselves accordingly. But Moses' message is for us too. We're, uh, we're a new humanity, united in Jesus. We're God's people. 
And 1 Corinthians 10, 11 puts it like this. Specifically talking about the stuff Moses is talking about. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So that's what the Bible says about the Bible, that this stuff that we're reading today happened as examples written as warnings for us. So for God's people then in front of Moses, their past horizon was to be dominated by God's grace to them in the Exodus and his covenant with them at Mount Sinai or Horeb as it's called in Deuteronomy and all the ways he'd been looking after them. For us, our past horizon is to be dominated by God's grace to us in the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus. Their future horizon was to be dominated by them enjoying peace with God in the land that he promised them. Our future horizon is to be dominated by the sure hope of peace with God in eternal life with God in a new heaven and earth that we're promised. They've been struggling for the last 40 years, but they're about to become really well off, really comfortable when they settle in this promised land. And the big question is, how will they remain faithful to God when they're rich and comfortable? And what about us? Adelaide is the good life, isn't it? Usually sunshine, not today, but beaches, good food, good coffee, good wine, uh, loads and loads of things to distract us so we don't even have to think seriously about anything if we didn't want to, let alone God. The challenge for most of us won't be in trusting God for providing our daily needs. It will be for some, but not for most of us. But to remember God when we're hypnotized by all the material stuff and just the plain busyness of our lives, that's our challenge, to not forget God in the midst of all that busyness. For Moses and this generation before him, might as well have been the one before it, or the ones following it, because the message they need is the same, and we need to hear the same message. And so Moses takes them through this warts and all tour of their places of failure. It's our next heading, places of failure. Excuse me. So Moses shows them their past disobedience to encourage their future obedience. Moses shows them their past disobedience to encourage their future obedience. So what's gone on? Let's whiz through it. God told them, verse 6 to 9, to head off to take possession of this prime land that he's promised them, that he's giving to them as a free gift. So verse 19, they'd marched there, sustained and guided by God through the vast and dreadful wilderness, and they'd reached Kadesh Barnea at the foot of the promised land. And verse 21, see, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord your God of your ancestors told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. But they are afraid and they are discouraged. They send spies to get a sneak preview who confirm it's a good land, but still... Verse 26, you, but you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tent and said, the Lord hates us. He brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. 
Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large. The walls up to the sky. We even saw Anakites there. So instead of trusting God's promises, they trusted in appearances. And on the one hand, you think, well, you know, they'd only known life as slaves in Egypt or being desert nomads. Of course, they were terrified by 45 cities and giant soldiers. But think about what else they knew. I don't know if you've seen the movie Dunkirk or you've read about Dunkirk in the Second World War, about the evacuation of 300,000 troops from Belgium in the Second World War. Now, that happened in my grandparents' time, and yet it's still part of the British national psyche. People still talk about that Dunkirk spirit. The Israelites had something much more spectacular in their own lived history, their own living memory. 29, then I said to you, do not be terrified, do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you just like he did in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until, all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. In other words, God says, I've always been with you. You didn't need to be scared, but you were. And so verse 40, that generation is sent back in a kind of, the, the, the exodus is kind of put in reverse and they go back into the wilderness for that generation to largely die off. So Israel are at this crucial point in, for their future, a point they've been there before. It's a real sense of deja vu here. Humanly speaking, a frightening point with the odds against them. So Moses needs to drag up their past to help them to see that they've got God on their side and that his plans are unstoppable. He needs to show them their past disobedience to help them obey in the future. Because God is faithful to the promise of land he made to his people. And he doesn't want this generation to miss out like their parents did. And we need to face up to our past too. Now, we need to do that with our gospel armor on. Okay? We need shields of faith to deal with the arrows of guilt and shame that come with looking back. We need to be really sure that in Jesus we are forgiven already right now we're safe in his arms and i don't intend to be like um christian meetings i went to as a teenager where the speaker would just keep picking at the scabs of emotional wounds to provoke a reaction i don't want to emotionally manipulate anyone or guilt anyone into a response to god it's just unkind and unhelpful but unless we remember just what we've been saved from then we're doomed to keep making the same mistakes. If, like Israel, we forget the grace and the power that God has shown in rescuing us already, we're doomed to keep making the same mistakes. I've been thinking about a specific period of my past more, recent, more than usual recently, because today I'm going for a kind of a reunion lunch with about 30 people 
who used to work in radiology at the old RAR, where I worked for five years. And as I look back on myself, on those, in those five years, there's lots of it I'm not proud of. And for me, the temptation today is to engage exactly as I did then, um, trying to be the most funniest, most likable guy in the room at all costs, any cost. I need to remember just how much God has saved me from in the past so that I don't slip into ungodly ways in conversation. If we do look back and find ourselves overwhelmed with shame and regret, what should we do? Well, I'll tell you what we shouldn't do is throw good after bad. So trying to make up for it with our own action, trying to redeem ourselves. That's what the Israelites did. Verse 41, they said, basically said, sorry God, well, sorry God for not trusting you, but we'll go and fight now. But it was too little, too late. And their attempt to make things right became another act of disobedience, another act of relying on themselves and not on God. Because God had already altered the plan to punish their original disobedience. God has already dealt with our past disobedience. God has already dealt with our present disobedience. And he's already dealt with our future disobedience. Jesus took on himself the punishment we deserve in his death on the cross. So the way to deal with our disobedience is with the obedience of faith. With the obedience of faith. The obedience of throwing ourselves on God's grace, trusting him to make us right in Jesus. We'll see as we go through Deuteronomy that Israel's only hope of obeying in the future is to trust God completely. Our only hope of growing in obedience, of dealing with our past in a healthy way, is to throw ourselves on God's mercy by repenting and trusting in Jesus. So have you done that? Or is your past stacked up against you, leaving you wandering in the wilderness? You can leave here today knowing that it's all dealt with, all paid for, all made good, and you have a place in the eternal promised land with only good things to look forward to. All you need to do is put your trust in Jesus. So we need to learn from God and trust God with our places of failure that we've been through. And we need to trust God in our success. We get a sneak preview of what happens when we trust God and obey him on Israel's road to success. Our last heading, their road to success. So we're going to have a quick look at chapters 2 and 3. See, even in judgment, even under judgment, Israel have experienced God's grace. So in chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He's watched over your journey through this vast wilderness. This 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you've not lacked anything. And then Moses really rubs it in by contrasting Israel's response to God with the response of the nations around them. The nations who weren't God's chosen people, but have a look at what they did. See, on the road to the promised land, they were going to pass through some other nations. 
And God has these instructions. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. Why? Because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as as a possession. The Emites used to live there, a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Anakites again. So remember, the spies mentioned them. They were like big King Og. They were supposed to be giants, big scary men. That kind of idea. Verse 11, like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephites, giants, but the Moabites called them Emites. Horites used to live in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out. Are you following this so far? They destroyed the Horites from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did in the land the Lord gave them as their possession. Same thing happens in verse 19 with the Ammonites, who overcame the giant Zamzamites. Anyway, the message of all this going through and not taking the land of the foreign nations, when God gives a land to people, not even the strongest humans can stop them. And that was just other nations, not God's promised people. They trusted God and taken the land. But God's own people, who'd already experienced miraculous deliverance from the superpower Egypt, they thought it was all too hard. There are signs of hope, though. More recently, God had, uh, Israel had trusted God with uh, uh, King Sion, who had refused to let them pass. And the result was he was completely defeated. Same in chapter 3 with King Og of Bashan. God tells him, don't be afraid of him and his big bed and his big soldiers. And they're not. And then uh, chapter 3, verse 3 to 6, these desert nomads, wimpy little Israelites, defeat Og and he's 60 fortified cities, all of them, all of them, including Og, king of Bashan. His bed was decorated with iron and was one nine cubits long and four cubits wide. And you can still see it in the museum in Rabba if you want to. So King Og was this giant and under God, Israel defeated him. So Moses wants to remind them before they enter the land of goodness of living and trusting and obeying God. He wants them to live trusting and obeying God. He wants them to choose life. So we're not going to come across King Gog and Koami, but what seems daunting and impossible to you? I mean, for me, humanly speaking, it's evangelism. It's sharing Jesus and people coming to believe in him. Remember one day when I was at Bible college, it was an open day. They invited all the missionary societies to come and try and recruit you. And it did get me thinking, Australians are just not interested in Jesus. Let's just go somewhere else and try and find someone who is interested. But in the end, I reckon everyone, every society has got its own barriers to the gospel. So here it's ease of life and self-satisfaction and endless distractions elsewhere the barrier to the gospel will be poverty or another religion or family culture whatever it is but god can overcome anything and he promises he will for those he has chosen god can overcome even the color bond fences around here that lock us all in our homes or maybe it's yourself maybe you are the biggest barrier, the thing that you feel you can't overcome. That sin you keep returning to, 
that seems impossible to overcome. That fear that will always be holding you, that thing that you fear will always be holding you back from knowing, becoming all you know God wants you to be. That fear that you can't manage without that thing you keep returning to. Trust God and obey him. Turn to him to overcome the impossible in you. You can't overcome it on your own, but he can. Turn to God and trust in him. Chapter 3, verse 23. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. But as well as our failures, uh, we need to deal well with our successes as well. We must got to guard against pride and ensure that we give the credit to God. So, to sum up, is it a good thing for us to go raking up the past, success or failure? Yes. With our gospel armour on, with Jesus' saving work on the cross, with our perfect future in God's perfect eternity dominating our horizons... Yes. It's as we face our past, as we see how serious our sin and its consequences are, it's as we face our past that we can learn from our past disobedience to help us obey in the here and now. As we face our past, we can see God's faithfulness and his grace to us at work. And as we face our past, we see our own exodus, our own escape, our own redemption, Jesus dying for us on the cross. See, Jesus on the cross, he shows us the depth and seriousness of our failure. And he shows us the height and the reality of God's love for us. Jesus brings us down to size, showing us we're sinners deserving judgment. And Jesus lifts us up to being children of God, his brothers and sisters. The gospel of Jesus makes us cry at our own hopelessness and laugh with joy at our sure hope. So face your past failures, but use them to throw yourself on God's mercy and prompt you to obey from now on. And face your successes, praising God for his gracious, undeserved provision and love for us. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for anyone here this morning really struggling with their past that dominates things and their being now. Lord, help us to see your work of grace in us. Uh, Where we could just feel guilt and overwhelmed by stuff, please help us just to turn to you, to trust you with it, to lean on your promises, throw ourselves on your grace that you've dealt with it all, that you've done the impossible. And that our future really is safe and secure with you in an eternal promised land. Lord, please help our past disobedience to drive knowing your grace evermore and drive our future obedience for your glory. Not to earn our way to you, but in thanks to your grace that you've won us back to yourself through Jesus. Amen.